Good, welcome. This is Untrump, two guys talking truth from two sides on Trump. My name is Adam Schindler, and I've got with me tonight the illustrious Doug Paget. Doug, thanks for being with illustrious. me tonight. I like to be illustrious. Yeah, well, it's all the shiny lights. So it feels fun to be in your seat tonight, starting things out a little bit. Um, yeah. Tonight, we wanted to switch up the roles a little bit. Doug has been, uh, some may say, grilling. Others may may say he's been taking it easy. Uh, I think that we've just been having a really fun conversation for the last couple of weeks, Doug, and I really ap- appreciated it. Um, yeah. I've personally been getting a lot of different feedback from my friends about how grateful they are, uh, sort of on this side of the proverbial aisle, that, that mm-hmm. you're asking questions and that you're really listening and trying to, uh, uh, to also listen. So thank you from my side of the aisle and my side of the friends. Ah, well, you are welcome. It's been a real, I've been hearing the same thing from many people that they say, man, how did you find that guy? He's a perfect partner for this. So, uh, well, it's been fun for, for, for sure. Yeah. So one of the goals tonight was, you know, Doug had said, look, Adam, you've been, you know, answering my questions about how possibly, could you vote for Trump? And every time you talk about that, you'd, you'd go, possibly, it's incomprehensible uh, it's that you would vote for Trump. And, it, you know, just the word and the language sort of sets it up of like, you know, it's yeah. sort of an unreasonable position. So I've been right. I've been trying to articulate that. Uh, and mm-hmm. tonight, the, the request has been, hey, why don't you talk to me some about my support for Hillary? Um, and so I'm going to do that. So if you want to, you know, maybe you can tell people a little bit about what you were thinking about switching across the aisle here. Yeah. Glad to. I was really nervous about, about making the switch partly because, um, what the project that I wanted to endeavor in, and I'm so grateful, Adam, that you're willing to do this was fundamentally to try to answer the question, uh, wasn't there something different about Donald Trump? This doesn't feel to me like we're in the conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat conversation. I felt like there was something really different about Donald Trump. And I was trying to figure out how could people who are Christian support Donald Trump and not have feel the need to have to sit it out. I would have known that back when I was voting for Republicans, I never could have gone down that route. And I'd heard from so many Christians that they were not just plugging their nose on that vote. They were enthusiastically supportive. So I wanted to try to answer the question uh, in my mind, how could someone vote for Donald Trump as a Christian leader? So I get nervous when we said, well, let's switch the roles and have you, Doug, talk about why you supported Hillary Clinton. Because I think in some ways, that's sort of old news, right? That there's Democrats and there's liberals and there's Christians on both sides. And we've been seeing that for a long time. Nothing new there. I didn't want to get away from the thing I thought was really the question of the hour. So I was a little nervous about this and thought, well, let's wait till episode five, but we're going to do it in episode four, and I'm glad to do it. I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a great time. And I also just want to make the point, Adam, that uh, I know you know this, or I hope you know this, and I want other people to know it. I've never endeavored on this as some enterprise by which to change your mind. That's never been my goal. My goal is to change my mind. I'm trying to listen in a way that I could make sense so that I could understand deeply the deep story that motivates someone to make a conclusion so different than my own. So I've been trying for me to understand. Some people have said, 
well, you know, it's really interesting. I can see you're using these tactics to try to help Adam. Like, you know, maybe, maybe he'll come around. I'll just tell you, that's never been my agenda here. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I don't have that as the goal. Uh, I'm really trying to uh, help myself come to some, some new understanding. So uh, I'll do the same thing tonight. I'll just, you know, as we talk about all this, my goal here is to offer how I view the world. I think that's what we can all do is offer our gift to the world, offer our opinion, give it as a, as a suggestion and other people can take it or not. And I wish more people in the world would offer their gifts. And, but uh, no is always a, just as appropriate of an answer as uh, I like that. So I, I don't have my, my, uh, my hands on this agenda tonight any differently than any of the other weeks. So. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, um, and I can understand that. What I, what I heard you say was just that Hillary is sort of your run of the mill candidate. She's been doing this stuff for many years and there's nothing really newsworthy about that. But Trump was this very, um, you, know, you called him a hurricane a couple of weeks ago, Hurricane Trump. So he's very abnormal in the political cycle and that, that there was something that really merited trying to understand support for him as apart from maybe some of the elections in the past cycle. That he was uniquely different in American political history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think, wow. All right. But then I've heard some, some from some friends who've said, um, you know, I've never actually heard a uh, whatever I get referred to as here, a progressive or a liberal or a Democrat or a leftist, take all those. Uh, I've never heard one of you people make a full-throated explanation as to how you can be Christian and hold those views. So it's been really interesting. I just thought people would be bored with that. But lots of people apparently have never heard someone talk about some of the things we might talk about tonight. So I don't know. it, It might be an interesting way for me to also kind of hear you and the questions you're asking or why this is important and that's important. Um, so, yeah. And, and that's really how I'm approaching this too, because, you know, I mean, I, I was a little bit nervous about switching roles because, you know, I've been, one of my favorite things on the planet is to sit extemporaneously and, uh, answer questions. Um, I love it. I'm in sales. Uh, I've done performance my whole life and I love being on the spot. Uh, but I know that I have a tendency when I have to prepare something and start thinking through things, I tend to go, into argument mode because I'm trained in philosophy Mm -hmm. and argumentation. And Mm -hmm. what I didn't want to do was to compile a whole bunch of reasons why I thought Hillary was a horrible client or a horrible um, candidate and why I thought that she would be a disaster for the, for the nation. Um, I didn't want to come tonight with all of my reasons for that because quite frankly, um, you know, you can Google that uh, and you, you know, (laughs) Uh, That's true. You can. I mean, what what would be the difference in us sitting here talking to each other versus just going out and Googling? And, you know, you can read your right side papers or your left side papers and outlets and, you know, get the same stats and facts. And but the thing that I'm interested in is the interpretation and trying to understand the motivation in behind, you know, Mm -hmm. what makes you tick, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as a progressive or leftist or you know, what's, what's your preferred pronoun for identification? Uh, you know, it's funny when, when we're talking about politics, I like to say I'm a prog- I'm progressive on politics. When we're talking about economics, I like to say I've recently been converted to leftist theology or leftist philosophy. I, uh, when it comes to sort of my own stance in the world, I'm an, I'm a Jesus following inclusivist, um, so I, yeah, th- those all it all it sort of depends on what the topic is that we're talking about. Um, 
for, for me, the big question uh, in anyone's politics is of the positions that someone holds, the arguments they want to make on particular topics, all of us have picked a certain tack on those uh, very detailed and, and certain topics. I'm interested in what was it behind a person that motivated them picking those and um, why that selection of them. I like to refer to that as that, that deep story that is in someone. Yeah. And the thing that I've tr- I'm trying to reconcile is that my vision for the world, the way that I hope that the world is, I want my politics, I want my own personal life, I want my religion, I want those to all match that kind of world that I want. The world that I'm that I'm leaning into and trying to get to my through myself or somebody else's ideas about, well, you support this kind of tax policy is what kind of world is it? where that's the tax policy. Like, what is it that someone's asking for the world to be like that would be reflected in that policy position? So that's that's the, the fundamental question that I'm trying to reconcile with myself all the time and then talking with you, Adam, here, or anybody else that I'm interacting with around politics. It's that larger question that I'm constantly trying to get at. So I'm not sure what label to put on it. Uh, I'm not a no-labels guy, so I'm comfortable with any of them. Yeah, uh, that 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 might get close because I think labels are real approximate anyway. So I'm not yeah. freaked out by them. So you you you're, you're welcome to use any of those labels for me. I'd, uh, I'll yeah, I've bought, man, I'm, I definitely appreciate that. I mean, I I appreciate labels insofar as they're shorthand to help approximate a complicated system. Um, you know, but uh, you know, so I'm not anti-labels, but I definitely appreciate. You know, that there's different ways to talk about spirituality and politics and the economy. Um, and I kind of like to get into some of that here tonight. So yeah. um, I got a couple of questions that I've that I've prepared and some some things I kind of want to jump into. Um, the first takes a little bit, uh, you know, of a setup is that. Oh, that's cute. That's me and Hillary. I got to meet her a couple of a couple of weeks ago. It was a good day for me. A couple of weeks ago. Yeah, after the election, she yeah. was doing. She was at an event where she was talking about her faith and the role that her faith has played in her life, and it was a good day. Fun. It's a good thing. Yeah. Well, I could show you my selfie of me and Donald Trump, but there's a yes, Secret yes, Service yes, guy yes. right in the middle of it, so it kind of ruins it. I didn't get, I didn't get to hug her, him. Uh huh. Yeah, I wasn't supposed to do that either, but I did it. So, I mean, I wasn't supposed to do a selfie. I was supposed to just be in the group picture. But anyway, oh, but fun that for was me. A fun moment. I'll try not to look at the screen. That'll be distracting. Yeah, I'll, I'll move it away. I'll move it away for you. <laughs> you know, if I seem like tonight I'm, I'm backing away from Hillary, I just want people to know I'm not. I'm, I'm with her. was in 2008. will be, you know, 2020. Well, one of the things that I discovered, uh, I just want to set the stage a little bit to some of my questions here because I did a little bit of an experiment this last week. Um, we talked briefly about it. You and I sort of talked off a line about some of the work that um, the, the organization that I work for did on the campaign, specifically using Facebook and some targeting. And so I wanted to do a little bit of that myself and uh, sort of as an experiment for myself. So what I did was I took the episode three um, that we did last week. I entitled it something with the name of white nationalism and culture wars inside of it. And then I boosted that into the southern portion of the United States on Facebook with a boosted post uh, for people that were conservative, ultra-conservative, moderate, Trump, and Christian, to see what sort of interaction I could have with people in the Deep South who uh, Facebook, at least, identified as on the right side 
of the puzzle um, politically. And you know, the results, I had about 1,000 people engage with it. Um, 1,000 reach for my budget was only 25 bucks or something. But what was interesting to me, uh, it was pretty good engagement for that budget too. It was like 20 cents. Right. Yeah. Um, but the thing that was interesting was that all of the comments were right-sided bashes on me being a liberal, progressive, um, you know, full of BS and bunch of, a bunch of assaults and curses on me. Um, there were a couple of people that were, that were somewhat thoughtful, but some people liked it. But nobody that commented, except for one person out of, I don't know, 20 comments, commented because they read the article, they watched anything, they just saw untrumped and began to attack me. Um, and I thought that that was kind of interesting. And I just wanted to, to say up front here, because I've self-identified as a Trump supporter and someone who thinks as a conservative, I don't want to equate that with the idea that gets floated around there by some that everything that Trump does is great. Everything that happens on the right is great. Everything that happens in the conservative party. Um, yeah. I think that there is a tremendous uh, divide and I'm pretty disappointed in uh, the people that were commenting and in, in the way that a lot of people on the right side or in the conservative realms just don't read, don't engage, just make their judgments and make their comments um, and just kind of come out and attack. Uh, so I found that kind of interesting. So next week, I'm going to take this episode and I'm going to boost it up into uh, the Northwest oh. and the Northeast um, and see what what the left side, according to Facebook's statistics, have to say. Um, so, yeah, that, uh, do, do you feel like that's a um, just a reaction to the title? Do you feel like that's yeah. what they were doing? They were part of me wonders that. I mean, there's there is a, a couple of sentences that people could read. Uh, and part of me as a marketer just sort of left it messy and not clear um, to see where people could engage in the middle of a conversation, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. But having done that experiment uh, this week, that's sort of what led me to this conclusion that I don't really want to jump in there and start bashing on the right or the left with statistics. And so, you know, in the same manner that, that when I told you that I was a Trump supporter, I think on week one, and we had an interesting conversation about me asking God and feeling like God gave me an invitation yeah. to support the guy. Not, not mm -hmm. God told me to vote for him or that he is the one that God wanted as president, but an invitation for me to support him. Um, I did the same thing this week, and I, I prayed and I asked the Lord. I was like, all right, so what do you want to do here? Um, I have my list of stuff. I got, you know, 20 years of disliking Hillary and Bill and... Uh, there's plenty of ammo this week with all the stuff with the Ukraine and the Iranian stuff and the Trump dossier and stuff with Antifa. And, you know, oh, there's plenty baby. of there's plenty yeah, of talking points. Dive into that. Right. Yeah. And if we may get there at the end. But what I felt was this. Um, I felt like I got asked the question, well, Adam, why do you think people supported Hillary? Mm -hmm. And I realized I have no clue. Like, it's incomprehensible to me. <laughs> why people would support Hillary. He said, well, go and find out. Huh. So I began to research and do some studies and a thought exercise. Uh, and I basically said, all right, so what makes the left tick? Um, what are some of their key core values that I can discern that are issues and things that are important to them? And how did Hillary sort of fit into that? 
So I came up with two, and I'd like to ask you about some of those core values. You can tell me whether or not they are the core values um, or part of the core value. And if they are, then I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, the first one was sort of hit me in the face was from our very first conversation uh, offline, you were talking a lot about um, uh, people that were underrepresented. Um, people that didn't have a voice or uh, politically people that would maybe be considered to be oppressed or under minorities or underrepresented people economically or racially or culturally. Um, and I felt like as I looked through some of the theme that was running through a lot of this was that the left is very concerned and very focused on people who are um, oppressed by the strong, the weak who are oppressed by the strong. Um, is that a, uh, is that a category or a core value that you think you know exists in some capacity, or is there a way that that you know you could elucidate some of those other points? Yeah, no, in there? I think you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, there's there's no doubt that a lot of the people I talk to, and for myself, that I'm motivated by this uh, for all kind of notion that you get in the American experiment, and from my Christian faith, it's motivated by a for all, as in God loves the world. And uh, we love our neighbor, we love our enemy, we love ourselves all equally, all in the way we love God. Like that, that inclusive nature is super important. And one of the ways that plays out is to recognize in politics, which should be the largest uh, arena that we think about when we think about our lives together, our, maybe our private lives are one thing, and then our families, and then our businesses have to expand a little wider, and then nonprofit organizations, or but our civic organizations, and then specifically our government organizations, the way we're arranged in the United States, that has to think about everyone. That's the obligation. It has this really important obligation. So, yeah, there's there's no doubt that that's that that's the case. And um, part of the reason that I have a hard time supporting Republicans specifically is that I feel like in that world the primary nature of that in the last 25 years has been this sort of Ayn Rand kind of everyone should take care of oneself and that will raise all the boats. If you get the collective pressure out of the way, meaning the federal government, then people are going to be more freed up. And I, I've just, I just think on a practical matter, that's not true. Someone's got to be thinking about the whole. So yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Now I will say the thing I have feared inside of the, the political spectrum that I'm on is that there can be a tendency to just simply want to turn the tables. One group of people was left out. Another group of people were in power. Move out the people in power and move other people who were left out into the positions of power. That's never been the experiment in the United States. I fear that really deeply that that happens. Mm. Um, and, and the topics have shifted Right, the what what it meant to be the party of inclusion has certainly changed. You know, you can get all the way back to all the way back to uh, Abraham Lincoln, of course, but even from the 1960s and the 1970s, I, I, I was uh, I saw these YouTube videos of Ronald Reagan and George Bush arguing with one another in a debate in the primary in 1980 about who was going to be more accommodating to the immigrants. Yeah, right. That the Republicans were on that side at one point. I soured on it with, you know what, it's, they, they, there's really this trickle-down economics, there's a trickle-down power, and there's a trickle-down inclusion narrative. I wanted to leave that. So, yeah, there's no doubt that this, for me, the side that I come from, 
politically and in life is a side of inclusion. And my faith drives that just as much as practical politics or my belief about what the American experiment is all about. Yeah, that's good. That's a really good point. Um, that is most definitely a concern that I share with you about the power structures just shifting. And we go from one side of the aisle to the next, and we've got a whole new kind of overlords. Um, and just because it, it shifted from maybe Wall Street capitalism to some other kind of social uh, collectivism or social um, democratic socialism or Marxist-influenced economic policy, uh, yeah. you know, it's just it's the same basic structure, just with a different ideology behind it. Um, and I think that we need to have a, a different kind of power structure um, set in its place. Um, so that right and yeah mm -hmm. and for me the reason i end up currently in this stage of my life partly because of who i am and where the politics are ending up on the the left side of the of the aisle is that that's where that conversation is happening in a way that doesn't feel like it's giving in to other kinds of forces of uh, that we've talked about on this podcast nationalism and and other things so um yeah no i think it's i think it really I think it really matters. But I also know very deeply that a lot of people in this country feel like during the Obama administration that the government failed them and the government picked winners and losers, was not for everyone, told some people to get to the back of the line, and very much felt that, that sense of being excluded. There's no doubt about it. They didn't look at the White House and, and uh, Michelle Obama and President Obama in the way that I did and saw them admiringly. They just looked and said, not just because of racial differences, but the celebrities coming in, the whole way the thing went, they're just like, I don't know those people. I, yeah. I don't recognize that entire sort of apparatus. I, that's a very real thing. And I, I think that that was a real, from my vantage point, a real failure of the political side of the Obama campaign. That's one of the reasons I was so supportive of Hillary is I actually saw her as someone who I thought would, uh, would take that very seriously. I believe she takes that seriously. And I was very excited about that. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry you didn't get your chance to see what would happen. Um, so the I haven't lost very many elections though, so this one stung pretty bad. Yeah. So the I mean, I don't think when I hear you talk about inclusion, and that is most certainly uh, a deep value of mine, um, and wanting people to not be left out, and wanting for them not to just you know like not get it. I'm not so worried about people not getting a chance to do the same thing that everybody else does. For me, inclusion is about uh, creating a, uh, an environment where people are able to express um, the uniqueness that's inside of them, that I believe that God created uniquely in people, and that they don't have fetters or restraints or things on top of them, whether they're economic or political or spiritual that keep them from living the life that I think is available. And so I want to be able to do things and act in such a way to include everybody in the life that God made for them. The, the question that starts arising, of course, then is the great how question, right? We all want to include people, but when you start including people, sort of, I mean, it's sort of a zero-sum game, right? I mean, to include this group, you've got to take from this group, you know, and how do we begin to create a world where in order to include, we don't have to diminish other people's views um, or take the taxes from one particular bracket to include and incentivize not working in another bracket. Like, 
it's the how question that really gets messy, don't you think? I, I, I do think so. I, I also think, though, that there used to be a argument in conservatism, and uh, this is why uh, I'm, I'm confused now about where the where Republicans are, the difference between a Republican, a conservative, and a Trump supporter, because I think they're three different categories. But yes. In conservatism, there used to be an argument that what you wanted to do was not have an, a, a discussion about disbursement of a pie. You wanted to grow the pie. Yeah. That it wasn't a zero-sum game, that some people having being included meant someone else didn't get to be included. We would make room for everyone. We're all in this together. So that kind of messaging that everyone's in, we need to think about it, it takes a village for a child, all that, th there's a whole worldview there, right? Which Hillary was totally mocked for, I get it. It's a punchline, you know, it takes a village. Um, but that's also a worldview that says we have to actually think about one another. And I do think we can expand the pie. I think we can expand the economy. I think we can expand opportunity. And I'm with you on the idea that, hey, let's free people up so they can experience their God-given nature of things. What I don't think enough conservatives recognize, and I hope that the people uh, on the Democratic and, and left side of the aisle recognize, is we have a whole set of systems in this country that favor some people over other people. So we're not starting out where everybody's equal and the system treats everybody the same. There are entire segments of our population, numbers of them, and it's rooted some in the history of this country that has to be dealt with, that we can't just say, let's pretend that everyone's starting from the same place and make sure that no one's given any kind of extra burden to carry. Some yeah. people in comparison are carrying extra burdens and some people are being carried. And, you know, it's that old adage that the, the, the poor person, you know, the guy was born on third base and acted like he hit a triple. Right. And this comes up where Obama would say the things that he said, like, look, you didn't build all this, like all the infrastructure that went into your company. You didn't, you didn't, other people came around you and people did things and there's a whole history here and there's a so that's a piece that I, I would like to buy the idea that the government should should just uh, you know should make sure it's not burdening people down i think it has to go steps further to free some people from the cultural obligations and the cultural pressures that are on them that are not on other people specifically white culture specifically high education specifically some kind of creativity and earning power and not everyone has that. So you think about children, you think about people that have some less than body-abled capacities, you think about people who don't read and write as their primary path. There's a whole set of things that we just can't say, let's let every state run on its own and do its own thing. So I, I'm more of an activist about writing the circumstance we find ourselves in, which is why I've ended up over on the, over on the liberal side. Right. I can appreciate I think, that. I think we have to. I think we have to interfere more in the in the lived experience of most people in this country, in order to in order to straighten that up. Interfere more in the lived experience. Yeah, I, th I think we have to make intentional moves to change patterns that are preferencing some people over other people. We have to do something about that. We can't just say, "Well, I hope I don't put any extra burden on you." We have to interfere in the experiences that people are living on a day-to-day -day basis to make sure that they actually have those opportunities. Right, and so written into that, it seems like to me, I mean, it seems like a very good idea, right? A very good concept. But yeah. written, I mean, right? I mean, that's what a parent does with their child, correct? I mean, 
We interfere with their, with their juvenile lived out experiences because we see and know and understand more. Um, mm-hmm. And I value that. Uh, I get a little bit concerned when it's the government that starts doing that because I don't have the same measure of trust uh, in, the, in a federal bureaucratic in apparatus that I would in a, a spouse or a wife or a husband or a family unit or a pastor, um, a healthy pastor uh, in a church. Um, you know. And so my concern is there, written into that statement that we need to interfere in other people's lives, is this idea that we know better We know better how they ought to be doing what they're doing or spending their time or spending their money or based on the things that they've said. Or maybe maybe one of these privileged white people dressed their white baby in a Moana Halloween outfit, you know, and I need to come and help them understand why that's just fundamentally an incorrect and demeaning way to dress a seven year old that has no clue about any of this. So I'm going to interfere with my good understanding and try and interrupt their flow so that we can have a more inclusive society by telling them that they can't put their child in a Moana outfit. Um, and when it gets down yeah, to that level, that. I have a really hard time understanding. Yeah, of course, I don't think, I, yeah, I would agree. I don't think you should do that, nor should, you know, the head of the executive branch tell, peop- tell people in private stores how to greet one another in December. I don't think you should do that either. Um, I think there's, however, so many other ways that one could think about this idea that we're going to intentionally as a country interfere with systems that are oppressive without saying someone's going to tell you the better way to live. Right. That, that talking point language, I've heard it my whole life, yeah. that someone's going to tell you the better way. They know better than you. That better language Okay, that is that is moralistic. That, you know, that's triggering something in someone, right? So I get that. I'm not suggesting that the government should come in and tell someone necessarily the better way to do their private life. But I do think the government should come in and tell companies how much exhaust they should put into the into the air, what they can do with the contaminants in their factories. I do think we should talk about creating situations where men and women are not sexually harassed at work. I do think we should create a context in which some people are paid less money because of their um, uh, their, their gender or because of their sexuality. And I do think that the government has a role to play there. So, yeah, I, yeah look, I'm not talking about some kind of a Definitely nanny state. I mean, I am talking about a, a guaranteed payment from the government to everybody, and I think everyone should receive that, right? So, yeah, so we just leftist economics. Sort of like Saudi Arabia? Yeah, or like we do with people that are on government pensions, like we do with people on social security payments, like we do with people that are retired from the, from the military, like we do with kids that are grow up in families that don't have enough income. We do this all the time. So let's not act like we don't do it. I'm just saying let's do for everyone that which we're doing for some people. And that, again, is rooted in the kind of let's not, if we're not going to have this, let's pick some winners and losers. We actually have to work a whole lot harder because some people are starting in a deficit. Yeah. And I think we have to, I think we have to do something about it. Now, all of that is what I mean by the sort of the, the left side of the aisle. And I get it that taxation has been a problem in this country since we revolted against, you know, uh, England. Right. One of the motivating factors to the revolution was taxation without representation. So we've been fighting about taxes for a long time. I don't suspect that's going to go away. And I know no. there's a lot of people who feel that when the government taxes them, 
that they're engaging in an act of redistribution. I agree with Joe Biden on that. I think it's an act of patriotic inclusion when someone pays their taxes. I think it's what we've decided we're doing in this country. And when someone evades it, we consider that to be a crime. Yeah, well, I I mean, the the argument about taxes is not about the fact that there's any tax. It's about the amount of tax. Um, by and large, and and you know there 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 I suppose are some on the on the far right that say there should be no tax. Um, but well, yeah. okay. So can I just ask, as you as a thoughtful conservative in your conservative circles, what's the amount that we would say is the amount of tax that conservatives would stop saying taxes are too high? Yeah, I mean, I've I've seen some tax plans that float ideas of flat tax between fifteen and twenty percent. Um, I've got a, let's just say we had a a 20% flat tax. Do you think the anti-tax people, the, the, uh, I'm trying to think about that guy who's always fighting for, uh, cutting tax. Do you think that crowd would say, good, we're done. We're done with the idea that we're taxed enough already. We think we're taxed just the right amount. I suspect the number is zero. That's the only number that will start, stop the argument, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean that's a. I think that that's definitely an assumption. Um, you know, I, I that doesn't seem to mesh with the facts that people are trying to lower taxes and not put them at zero. One of the conservative party's heroes in Ronald Reagan certainly didn't had opportunities to do some significant things, and he didn't put the tax rate at zero. Um, right. And that's, I mean, looking at tax policy and economics, and I mean that's an interesting yeah. thing. Um, so you can probably hear where my question is in that, which is. Well, then look, it's not about the amount. It's not. I, I know people say that because that sounds reasonable. I'm not, I'm not opposed to taxes. I'm just ref- I'm well, just because the amount. But nobody's, per- nobody's suggesting zero. So I think the taxes represent something else other than just how much money is being taken. I think it's um, a different relationship with the government or with the one anotherness. And that's that, that's where I think some of the divide in our country exists. Is people have different imagination about what it means to be an us. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I can appreciate pursuing that, but I I think that it's a fallacy to say that just because um, people aren't pushing for zero doesn't mean that it isn't about an amount. Um, you know, there's a, a conscious awareness I think in many circles, at least for myself, that you know I drive on the road and I use public services and I know the firemen and. The, the first responders in our in our city. And I understand, you know, my responsibility to pay for public school education for other kids that live in the apartments down the road from me, you know, and I don't have income tax in Texas, but I pay a hefty chunk of my homeowner's money towards public education, you know? And so yeah. I get that. Um, I do think that we need to cap it because it keeps going up and it keeps getting siphoned off into other kind of programs that I think have expanded past the central goal of, of what the initial targets have been. Um, the problem is not government. The problem is that we haven't had a way to limit the expanse of it. And the problem is not taxation. The problem was taxation without representation, that we didn't have a say in how our money would be spent or what kinds of goods it would be taxed, and that it would be taken from us and shipped overseas to the, to the monarch and it wouldn't be reinvested in our own communities. Yeah. So that's yeah, part right. of the that's part of the concern on the on the right is that you take money out of our pockets and you ship it over to Europe and we start paying federal carbon emissions tax credits to other high coal emitting countries that it just goes out of the U.S. Right? That's what bilateral trade agreements are all about. Um, so 
it isn't yes, it could, it about could be, nothing. You're not always, th- those taxes are not always paid outside of our country. Sometimes no, absolutely paid, not. But that's country, an example. Your own country, they're not being shipped out. Yeah, well, no, well, not one hundred percent. So I get that, right? That's yeah, that's and and this is where the deeper question to me about how someone views the world and what kind of world they want to live in is where it gets interesting. And for for me, it's all of these r- results in the question of does this create the kind of world where the kind of country where more people are participating in more ways for the benefit of more people. So I'm a little greedy when it comes to all this. I would say that people on you know my side of the uh, perspective, we're greedy. We want more people included for more goodness in more ways to benefit more people. And I think that's what the project is supposed to be. Yeah. I think there's a competing set of ideas on both sides of the political aisle that say, no, there's actually not enough. We're going to have to shut this thing. I, I think there's some other some other pressures. That's not the, the stance that I take. And so the reason I could be a supporter as a progressively minded religious person is because I think that that story matches my faith. And I think it matches what I was wanting to see out of uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign, right. the Hillary Clinton administration. And so I that's, think there's no doubt that that's what she was arguing for. And I yeah. think a lot of people were fighting her hard. And it's fair. You know, we should have robust discussions in this, in this country. Um, I, I followed that presidential election with a deep amount of interest. I was deeply, deeply, deeply engaged. And I'll tell you, I, I did not hear Donald Trump talking about any of that. And I didn't hear Hillary Clinton talking about any of that. I mean, it's, it was maddening to me. I can't give you a single Hillary Clinton quote from that campaign. And, you know, like, I got a, I got a huggy picture with her. Like, I'm in. Yeah. And I couldn't give you a quote. So well, the half, of, the, half of Trump supporters are a basket of deplorables. There's a quote, if you a need third, one. A third. A third. Oh, I'm baskets. not very good at math, I suppose. There's three, there's three baskets. Well, and, that, and you, you do know, I mean, that was the reference we were, that I was getting to last, last week, right? That yeah. There's this group of people who are about nationalism and exclusion, and she, she was making the point, because I'm sure you listened to the, the true source. You didn't just take the bumper sticker. You listened to her talk, I'm yeah. guessing. And in the talk, she said, there's traditional Republicans. There's some who felt like they're left out. Then there's this other basket. And now these people are doing something totally different, and I think it puts the country at risk. I refer to that as those as the, depo- the, as the deplorables, because every political party has said that all along, and then that got swooped up into, she called us all the deplorables. So it, was a, it wasn't smart. I'm, I'm not defending the comment. I'm just saying the context was it was about the exclusivist white nationalist, the very people that were conversation Spent yeah. some time with last week. I think that's what it, that that's how I that's how I understood it. Uh, that, that's that's okay. what I think she was getting at. Well, I um you know I certainly understand the value, and I think if conversation could be framed around, look, we want more people to be involved in this, and the question isn't whether they should be. The question is how and what the trade offs are. Um, you know, I think that that's a really good a really good way of approaching things. Um, when there's a lot of language going on right now, specifically one of the main charges that was made of Trump was that he was, uh, you know, he was a misogynist, that he was, you know, very um, anti-women. I certainly am not going to defend him and his positions. I found many of his statements on that issue um, deplorable myself, some of his comments about Megyn Kelly and obviously the uh, audio tape. But part of the resistance to some of that was uh, on the right side was just sort of this sense of like, you know, there's a narrative that, that says that you're, you know, that a lot of white men are sexist. And trying to understand that as a white man who doesn't 
feel like he's sexist. And maybe you could ask my wife and maybe she write on your Facebook page and tell you, you know, whether I am or not, I don't know. Private um, message me, private message. Private message. I have some learning to do perhaps. But so as I was looking at that, I came across and I'm familiar with this idea. It wasn't my first rodeo on it, but this idea of a patriarchal culture and specifically that language surrounding feminism and this, this view that a patriarchal culture is what America was really founded on. And this idea that, that men have dominated over the women. Uh, we talked briefly about it last week uh, that, you know, for 200 some years, we've had white male presidents. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had an African-American and had a chance for a woman. And, you know, I know that we don't vote with our organs, uh, but I also think that it would be good for Americans to, you know, to have a female president. I think that that would be a significant milestone. Uh, But my question specifically then is about patriarchal culture. So when this language from some of the the left-leaning feminists start talking about the patriarchal culture, uh, the way that I kind of understand that is they're not just talking about men versus women. This is more of the oppressed, the powerful lording over the less powerful. Those with the voice, taking it from those that don't have the voice. Um, it's really just this, this strong oppressing the weak. Uh, and that that patriarchal culture, that white male patriarchal view is an indictment on the strong who oppress the weak in a very similar way that some of these other inclusive things are. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that seem like a good articulation of what patriarchal is or as you understand it? Uh yeah, I mean, if I was, you know, having to give a grade or something, yeah. No, I'm just trying to understand. C plus. I don't think it's wrong, but I think it doesn't go, it doesn't actually go, it doesn't cross the Rubicon that that argument's trying to cross, which is not that every man is sexist. I I, I was in a great conversation with a person today, because this is a big conversation in the public public radio world, which I listen to. and this hashtag Me Too, which is women raising this, had a whole conversation about uh, the kind of permission giving for men. So I, I, I get it. There can be a tension point that's, that tends to personalize that experience to everyone. I think the argument, though, is not is it every man. I think the argument is there are cultural assumptions that do not need to be in place but are in place that tend to defer to men and we can do something about it, and the collective force of government has a part to play in righting that that particular wrong. You you, you, you might know this this old th- th- there's this joke where or this sort of riddle where um, uh, a man uh, a man is in a, a car accident with his with his son, and they get rushed into the hospital, and the woman comes rushing into the, or sorry, and the doctor comes rushing into the emergency room and looks down at the boy and says, I can't operate on him. That's my son. And the question is, how is that possible? And that story has been told to a lot of people. And they pause for a minute and they're like, how could that be? His mom was the surgeon, right? But in the joke or in the in the in the riddle so many people say well when a man was in a car accident with a son and then he gets rushed in and then the surgeon runs in and says i can't operate on that on the boy that's my son and people don't know to say well obviously it was a woman surgeon that notion that thing that happens that default to 
men are surgeons, women are. Now, some of that's just some old-timey cultural roles, but that's the kind of thing that people are talking about when they talk about patriarchal systems that, that are, ba- are bent toward preferencing males and especially white males, but not just white males, because black males really feel abused in this conversation as well. So it's a, it's a difficult thing. So I think it's more than just, hey, we had a bad history. We started with white male landowners. Uh, the suffrage movement took far too long for women to have an equal right to vote. Women couldn't be divorced or own property for, too, for, for a long enough period of time. Like that, that history, that is a thing. But it's the effect of all of that in our society that's continued on that so many people recognize. And I'll tell you, it's not just men who prefer a system that's male-dominated. There's a lot of ch- I run around with about a lot of church leaders, who, women who like going to churches where there can only be male leaders, male elders. That whole thing is not just that only men want it to be men. There are people of all different uh, gender uh, self-identification that, that would prefer men to, to lead. I, I don't understand it. I think we would have a much better world if we had women in, in all kinds of leadership. Statistic, or, uh, science is even showing us this. Just what happens when women are in the room, it changes the testosterone and pheromone levels of people. It's a better experience to include women. Yeah. So I, I think it's not wrong, that argument. But, but for me, it's something much deeper. And this is why, for me as a Christian, I see Jesus as a total woman uh, elevator. He's a person that elevates their life. He's a person that frees them. He's a person that includes his whole way of being was trying to take the system of his day, which was male-dominated, and to open that up not only to women, but to a much more feminine way of life and of being and much more caring and holistic. I, I think it's just a much better way to view the world. Yeah. Think more, more women leading. And that's one of the biggest... Re- I didn't think it was just, hey, that'd be a nice thing to check off. You know what? We haven't had a woman president in a while. We should probably have ourselves one of those. I thought it would actually do, an, as, and I still believe it will, whoever the first woman president is, it will create a significant culture shift in what it means for there to be women, just as it happened in the, in the military and in any other uh, forms of organized life in our country. When women get to be full participants with everyone else, with, with all the men, it's a better world. Yeah. And, and I think, fr- frankly, it's just worth pursuing. And, and I found Hillary Clinton to have been a great, a great candidate for that. I mean, I wasn't going to I didn't, I'll tell you, I didn't vote for John McCain and he had a woman vice presidential candidate. Right. So if you need to call a little, okay, Mr. Feminist, when it comes to voting, how about Sarah Palin? Were you, were, were you voting on that one? Fair enough. So I do think it's quite possible for someone to not have voted for Hillary Clinton and still believe everything that I was just rattling on about. I, that's totally reasonable. Okay, not so voting for Hillary Clinton does not make you not a feminist or a f- woman supporter. Yeah, well, that, that's refreshing to hear, and that puts you more towards the middle of your left party, <laughs> um, for certain. Um, you know, and I wasn't making an argument that I was fully articulating the feminist view with a, a brief introduction on patriarchal power structures. Yeah. Um, you know, and I appreciate yeah, that I, I elucidation. I mean, I've worked inside of the church and I have experienced quite a bit of that male dominated, you know, interpretation of the New Testament that fundamentally misrepresents what I believe Paul was talking about in the culture of the day. And we absolutely need women in leadership. And I mean, I noticed as a young guy, my mom wanted to be an elder in our reformed evangelical church. Um, and, you know, I remember as a 12 year old kid, just crying myself to sleep because she told me they wouldn't let her be an elder because she was a woman. Mm-hmm. And, 
I remember watching that for the next 20 years and thinking in my teenage years, like the women that I see up front talking at some of the Campus Crusade things I was going to, like the ones that I see doing it, it seems like they're trying to act like guys. I'm like, I want women to be able to be women in whatever uniquely female stuff that they have to bring. Um, Mm -hmm. But part of the concern is that you start talking like that. And I even stuttered when I said it, because the moment that you say that women are unique and different than men and you want them to be free to be women and not be men, um, you know, you have to sort of stumble over your words now because of this culture that sort of, uh, you know, twists all that up in a lot of people's views. Um, But I I think that maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I do, too. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I got to ticker run in the back of my brain to make sure I say that stuff right. But it's not because I feel like we, for me, that we live in a culture in which people have made it unreasonable. I think I want to say it not in my reflexive ways. I want to say it in the most accurate ways. And truthfully, I haven't had enough practice to say it in the ways that I would feel comfortable saying it where it doesn't backhandedly um, insult someone. Um, so that's part of the issue, right? There's some overall cultural competency that needs to happen for people of my age, at least, you know, a a middle-aged, you know, 51 year old white guy. Uh, I'm not at all prepared for the, to talk about the world in the complexities in which it exists. I'm not even saying the world that I want. I'm saying I don't even come close to getting it right in the world that exists. So I think all that political correctness is a way in which in other disciplines in someone's life, they're just trying to, they're trying to learn the, the, uh, they're trying to learn the nuance because it matters, not because there's some thought police that's coming in to, uh, to punish them in some way. And I don't think the government does that anyway. I I don't think they should do that. I don't think they ought to do that. Well, I mean, that's refreshing to hear. I, you know, I'm, I'm, immediately biased to not believe that that's actually what goes on in a lot of different places. Um, you know, but I, I would love for that to be, I mean, would that there would be more thoughtful, mindful, aware people on the left side that weren't just hurling insults. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that get made to feel like there's some sort of sexist bigot because they say something that, you know, somebody takes offense to, and it has nothing to do with their heart, nothing to do with their life experience, nothing to do with their character, and they get impugned for it. Um, right. And and that's that. You know, that's a problem. Um, we're we're wrapping up pretty close to our time here, um, and you know, and I wanted can, to. Can I just make one comment about that before we finish that? All right. The, the the idea that people take that struggle that we're both recognizing, and give a pass to Donald Trump for being obnoxious and rude and cruel. I'm not suggesting you do that, but there's a lot of people who do. They say, I just like it that a guy's finally not going to do all that political correctness stuff. Like, like that, that kind, and even the way I said that, right, I was sort of doing some sort of a, I don't know who I was there, or some, some guy that says that stuff. The Deep South, the Rednecks, the, yeah. Yeah, my neighbors. Of, I, thinking, I was trying to do my Northern Minnesota. Uh, but that, All that, you hosers there like, being politically correct. Accents. What's that? All you hosers up there being politically correct. Oh, yeah. Uh, So that, um, the the idea that this really, what I think is a really important way of of, 
a culture knowing how to send messages and to enculturate um, next generations is super important, and we should get that right. We, we work hard to say the right words because oftentimes words matter. Yeah. So when that gets sort of set aside so that someone can be bullied, so that someone can be rude, so that's the part for me, and I know, you know we're not talking about why I, I still can't get my head around, around Donald Trump, but that's the part for me that's just continues to animate um, uh, the other side of this argument, which is then let's let's not even work at it. Let's just go to name calling and um, brutishness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people don't. You know, this is part of my big concern. You know, why I'm doing stuff like this with you and and working on other things. The people on the right side that I've spent some time with, they don't even have capacity to begin having these kinds of dialogues. Um, you know, and thinking, thinking critically about these issues. Uh, I mean, I love, I love the sort of approach and the, the mindfulness and the thought process behind it. Uh, you know, if we sat offline and talked into specifics and started talking about specific policies, we'd start diverging. But that's the whole point, is to be able to have real discussions about policies that affect people from a place of shared understanding. And then we diverge like two, two roads in a forest on mm-hmm. how we make this happen. Because I'll approach that economically from a different place than you. And I think that's where the real dialogue can begin. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And so that's one last point I want to I question you on. Um, sort of connected into this is uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was making, I was coming on a little heavy uh, with my dislike for the Clintons and the Clinton Foundation. Made a statement about, you know, how I thought that the Clintons were engaged in criminal activity. Um, and, you know, you you said back to me, you said something to the effect of, well, it's not true until it's proven. There's no proof and it's not true until it's proven. And then made a statement about, you know, how maybe I thought that she needed to be tried and that the, the Benghazi hearings, you know, had had exonerated her. So I wanted to come back to that because that was an interesting statement for me, and it gets at the heart of some of my questions and some of my uncertainty about the political left uh, as it relates to what is truth. Because what I heard when you said that was something's not true until it's proven, and then you connected that to the Benghazi hearing because that was a congressional testimony hearing, right? So... In America, I mean, this is not meant to be a lecture for you. I know that you know this, but I'm just recounting this because it's important for the argument. Um, In America, the standard of conviction, the burden of proof is what you said, that you're not convicted. You're innocent until proven, uh, you're you're innocent until proven guilty. So the burden of proof is very high in a society that's built on law, that if we're going to take away someone's freedom that's constitutionally guaranteed, and we're going to put them in jail or impose a penalty on them, there has to be an incredibly high burden of proof to establish guilt, to establish conviction. Um, But that, for me, that is not the same thing as establishing truth. And philosophically, if we conflate those two, that the standard of American jurisprudence for conviction is the same standard we have for truth, that it's beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, then all of the great concepts like love and justice, and you know, I could I could say to you tonight with total confidence, it's all well and good, Doug, that you know that you think that you love your wife, you know, and you're perfectly welcome to have that opinion. But I know better 
because you can't prove to me that you love her. You can talk about your feelings and those kinds of things. Um, send you a video. Send me a I'm video. Just kidding. It was a sex tape joke. Just yeah, 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 I get it. <laughs> yeah. But see, you know, that just is an articulation of, you know, the difficulty yeah. when we start getting into these conversations about, all right, so, so what is truth? Because it can't be, mm-hmm. in my mind, it can't be that you have to prove that something's true. I think you need to prove something to be convicted. But if you spend your whole life mm-hmm. conflating truth and conviction, you live as if you're on trial. And I think that's part that's of the great. issue. Yeah, yeah, great, great, great point. Thanks for for wrapping that around. What I was responding to was your back two weeks ago was your use of the word criminal. That's a technical term. Yeah. Had you said, "I think she's dishonest. I think she's a swindler. I think she's incompetent." Great. When you say criminal, now you've moved it into the arena of the law, and there, there's a burden to be reached. I think that people have said about Hillary Clinton, I don't like her, lock her up. The, you know, the, the person who was the head of the, whatever Mike Flynn was, led, that, led that, that chant. People yelling to incarcerate Hillary Clinton. That is saying it's reached that level of proof. So if, if you had said to me, I just find her to be, like, they're there's always stuff going on with those people. I find them totally untrustworthy. Yep. But not to be pointed, you didn't say that. No, I said she's you engaging said criminal. in criminal behavior. I know. And I said, well, the criminal behavior is something determined by an act of fact-finding, and that's a technical term. So if it's going to be criminal behavior, then we should we should adjudicate that but i don't think it's healthy for someone to continue to believe that something's been especially at this level and this kind of issue has been has been looked at by the fbi has been looked at by the justice department has even been looked at by by an inquiry the same thing with donald trump look if there's if there's nothing there i'm going to stop saying i think he colluded with russia because or that his campaign colluded because that's a technical term how could you how so, could you think he did something until it was proven though i mean well, I think you have to say I think I think what she did was something that that uh, that is that is wrong. But the people who determine its legality, its criminality, and I think to your point, to play with the words criminal and to move it back and forth as I have an opinion that she's a criminal. That's to, to your very well articulated point. That's not what we do with language like that. So yeah. truth is always bound up in language and cognitive sets. So any truth that's communicated has to have some kind of a set of, of uh, beliefs, rule, uh, um, uh, words, some kind of, of way of articulating it, or it's not transmuted from one person to another. So unfortunately, in the truth game, you're always also playing a linguistic game. And sometimes the, the, the words matter, sometimes they don't, sometimes they're close enough, we do a lot of approximating, good enough. Then there are certain terms, and look, it's, it's the, the Hillary Clinton thing, that is, um, those people, uh, the Clintons, have been under some kind of accusations, I mean, back in the 1990s, it was, you know, state troopers that were being murdered, it was Vince Foster, it was... I, yeah, it's, four it's, or so, so women it, coming out and accusing him of rape and sexual assault, and I mean, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, Bill, look, look, Bill, Bill Clinton's personal life, and uh, I, I, I was just as harsh uh, on him as I was on Donald Trump's personal, personal behavior. Uh, I don't blame Melania for that, and I don't blame Hillary. 
So, and this is where, you know, now it's that 1001 moment, but, but this is where for people who hold that to Hillary, it feels a little bit to someone like me, like, oh, someone, a woman like that never gets out from under the wing of her husband, where there's men that whose wives, uh, who are never held to the, to the standard of, the, of their wives. So I think there's something else going on. And, and I, I don't mind that someone would say, um, I, I, I think, I think she should have been put in jail. Well, okay, but that's not the same thing as it's it's expressing an opinion, and that's fair enough. So that's why my response to you would have been, well, you're welcome to hold that opinion, but the people for whom they looked at that, trying to determine if that opinion is valid, I think it's been set aside, yeah. and in my, advi- in, in my opinion, it's, we're just better off setting that aside and moving on with it. Yeah, well, well Obviously, I, that's not the case, because now we're talking about uranium uh, uh, deal. Yeah, and there's there's some pretty significant things that are coming out about that Kremlin involvement. They've already and, come out, my friend. There's a whole book. Look at the Clinton Cash book. It's all in there already. Yeah, it's all it's all it's been around. It's it. This, this is the thing. I just truly. I mean, I mean, as a guy who obsesses about Donald Trump, which I really do, you know, uh, man, people have been obsessing about the Clintons for a long time, and maybe they're just that good. Then you've got to ask yourself, how did she lose the election to Donald Trump if she was really that good? So, I don't know. You know what I mean? That that good of being slippery, being slippery yeah. well here. Now there's a lot that could be uh, said. All but... right. So anyway, that that, that those are the and look that, now you can see in that conversation, I chose a set of facts around Hillary Clinton that I I'm showing my deep story. Right? I pick certain things. You picked another set of facts. Those come from two different places and. And that's fair. That's why we need to talk with each other or press each other or make a whole argument and let someone respond to it. Because getting to that deep narrative, it's, it's, hard, it's hard for any of us. Like, this is why people go to therapists and pastors and counselors and sit into, in, in support groups trying to figure out the deep story in the back of their heads. It's not easy to know what it is you think or why you think it. Yeah, well, if you want to send me a check for 145 bucks for this last hour, I'd be happy to take it. <laughs> you know, you're welcome. I was going to charge you tuition for how how to become a how to become a liberal in an hour or less. Yeah, well, I think uh, that education's worth about a hundred bucks. I'd pay you that. Um, <laughs> so I appreciate right. it, my we, friend. We, we already get it out of your taxes. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, let's. From you. So, well, thank you. I know that we're out of time, and I'm pretty yeah, tired. Hey, thank so. you. So that's uh, that's untrumped episode four. Uh, three more to go. Uh, Adam, I haven't asked you this if you're open to this, but what I would love to invite people to do is to send us audio or video, uh, audio clips would be better, that we could then play uh, where they have a question for either of us um, or maybe a written piece. So maybe in these next few, we could entertain someone's audio piece or a written question, comment uh, that they have and allow us to um, to be uh, responding to that and and, and to see what, what, what people are thinking. I think there's enough interest out there. For yeah, I'd love to love to get some engagement going with other people too. Yeah. So thank you for the night. Right. Hey, thank you, my friend. Yeah, we'll see you.